You are about to listen to Defending Black Girlhood Podcast, and I'm your host, Lelada G. I'm a black mother. Look, I don't care what Mookie May May and Lakeisha oh, Mama does. I'm not Mookie May May and Lakeisha uh, Mama. Tripping. A preacher. Give me the key of D. And Mary had a little baby, and his name was Jesus. A life coach. Look, girl, if Chump don't want no help, Chump don't get no help. Oh, and a singer. And I, and I, and I, no, I ain't a singer. Most of all, I'm an advocate for black girls everywhere they are. And I'm telling you right now, I am unapologetic as hell about my fierce advocacy for black girls to be safe in their homes, schools, and communities. Join us for courageous conversations about topics that most impact our girls and be inspired to do your part in defending black girls in your part of the world. Some information may contain graphic, violent, or explicit language. Listener's discretion is advised. At the time, I felt that that's what I deserved. My self-worth at that time was so low that I was like, okay, well, you're not going to get anything better than this, so you might as well stick with it. And Mm -hmm. I did off and on for eight years. I want to underscore that the love we desire, we can give to ourselves. You know, we're taught to believe that the love that we desire, we need from someone else. And we do need relationships. We do. But in the meantime, in between time, the love that we seek, particularly to our little girls inside of us, we can love her. I believe that I could somehow change the way someone thought I was worth being loved if I could just do better in every way. Just learn better, do better, act better. Tell somebody, because I think the thing that gets us the most is the secrecy. That when you don't tell anyone, you are stuck in darkness with that person. Let some light in by telling someone that you feel you can trust. All right, so for the month of February, we're going to be talking about all kinds of love around defending Black girlhood and Black women healing. And so today, thank you for joining us for the conversation that is entitled, Can I Love Again? And I'm really excited for this conversation because I think any of those of us who have been through any difficulty around love, abuse, anything of that nature, sometimes it's hard to believe that you can love again. And so I am joined by three wonderful sisters, Fakita and Adonze. Welcome to the conversation. How are you ladies doing today? Pretty good. Good. Pretty good. Good. Glad to have you all here. And these two sisters are going to be talking about loving again after an abusive relationship. Also joining us is Monique Minkins, who is the director of coalition programs for End Abuse Wisconsin. Hi, Monique. Good evening. Good evening. So Monique is going to be joining the conversation and sharing some professional experience and advice towards loving again and moving forward and being safe. 
So I want to start off just saying if you are currently or someone you know and love is in an abusive relationship and they need some help of knowing where to start, you can call 800-799-SAFE. Or again, that's 800-799-7233. You can call or chat. They'll help you identify if you are in an abusive relationship, help you connect with local resources, and they can even help you come up with a safety plan. All right, ladies, the first question I love to ask guests on the Defending Black Girlhood podcast is what is one word you would use to describe your Black girlhood? And Paquita, I'll start with you. What is one word? Mm, I would say perseverance. All right. So why would you select that word? Um, because just, you know, just my experience of, you know, growing up and the experiences I've been through, I needed perseverance to get through it. I needed to keep going and, and know that there's going to be a better end result. Yes. Thank you. I love it. Monique, how about you? What is one word you would use? There's this, um, West African term called Tabono, and it it's a symbol, and it looks like paddles, and it's about work, hard work, about, and it's moving with strength, confidence, and persistence. And so, oh. um, I I live by that. I, I have a tattoo um, like it because it it rang with me about um, nothing comes easy, um, and it's okay to work and, and you enjoy the fruits of it when you work hard. Um, and the, the, there's something golden about the labor. Um, and, and I don't mean labor as in killing yourself, but just the process mm-hmm. and, and what you learn about yourself and what you're capable of and how sometimes you even surprise yourself. So um, Tabono is my word. I love it. Thank you. Adante, what would be your word? I would say triumphant. Even the times I thought I was not winning, the small wins, the tiny steps I was taking, I think I was always going towards something bigger. And I think that I'm always still going toward my next win. Oh, Okay now, girl, I love that because sometimes we can get so stuck with where we are and if we can disbelieve we're going towards something bigger, better, the next thing, it really can help us go. And thank you, ladies, for sharing that. So I want to start with just talking about what is your youngest memory of love? Like, when did you first think about love, know you were loved? Like, what is your first memory of love? Any kind of love? My father. My father's Nigerian. Um, he would wrap my dreadlocks with yarn of different colors, red, yellow, and green. And he always told me, you have golden skin. Um, and he always said, you know, don't ever um, be with anyone that wouldn't love you as much as your dad. Now, that turned out to be a very ironic situation. Um, so there's a lot of conflicting feelings about that. But my, my earliest and most beautiful, pure memories are with my dad, of all people. <laughs> Thank you. Well, we're going to have to get into that. You have me curious now. Um, I'm trying to think if I want to dig in now or dig in later. <laughs> I'll, I'll come back to that. <laughs> we can dig in. Number two. Uh, okay. I would probably say this 
same thing um, my my father and my mother uh, you know they've been married for how old am I <laughs> they've been married for 42 years yeah 42 years in March <laughs> and wow yes um you know that doesn't really happen anymore nobody stay together that long but I remember um, they used to like to uh, turn the music on and dance together and um, they would be dancing and then I would, you know, kind of walk myself into their dance. <laughs> in that moment, I would just feel so loved because, you know, it would be the three of us dancing together, you know. So. I love it. How about you, Monique? I am trying, when I, I think about it, I, I think about my sisters. I, we grew up in a house with a single mom, and my sisters are 10, 12, and 13 years older than I am. And so they were my caregivers. And I think they are the people that probably am why I am the way I am today, honestly. Mm -hmm. um, and just all, all of the, the cool things about growing up they were part of one helped me taught me how to ride my bike I remember getting injured and wanting and I had to go to the hospital and we got home and I wanted to go outside and my sister was there with me and I'm playing with my friends I'm like go away <laughs> you know <laughs> and yet she was there and so I I think about I can put my finger on things that they taught me um and how parts of my personality what parts i got from them um, mm -hmm. and, and that was it i love that you know i probably would throw in my brother you know only a couple years older than me but i would say you know growing up he our relationship probably was the only relationship where love wasn't complicated and love wasn't painful and love was a struggle. And, um, you know, I would definitely say my brother. Well, I wanted to get into just kind of the thought of the foundation of love. And Adanza, you kind of um, alluded to something because I want to ask, like, how do you feel like your mother and or father shaped the way that you receive and give love? So you kind of alluded to something, kind of the two sides of a sword with your father. You want to share a little bit more about that? Yeah, um, I think both my parents really affected the way that I um, both form attachments and understand what loving relationships mean to me. Um, my mom is a very um, kind of, she really valued me for what I could do in school, um, what I could accomplish, what I could look like to the outer world, how I could kind of shape the perception of other people, I think. Um, my mom really did her best. She was very loving, but she was really trying to hold the family together that was in a state of flux. And I grew up with a lot of violence. So my mom, um, I don't think really had the privilege of being able to love her daughter the way she always wanted to. Um, I think she just had a lot to take care of on her own and was just really trying to function, um, especially at times as a single mom, trying to navigate court systems and shelter systems all on her own. Um, my mom is a full-time teacher, special education, working at Green Bay Elementary in Milwaukee when I was a kid. So um, my relationship with her was mostly her taking care of things, uh, task-oriented things like eating and cleaning and 
Um, my dad then was a stay-at-home musician, and um, you know he had a PhD, but he could was not able to work because of his um, mental health issues. Um, my father's a first-generation Nigerian immigrant, and my mom's a white woman from Janesville. So, you know, they met in college, and they lived the California dream, and then they had kids, and they ended up here. And my dad um, became a very violent, abusive person um, in the onset of his very late um, schizoaffective and schizophrenic um, and bipolar manic depression, mm. kind of all those things. And then combined with the complex trauma of being raised in a war-torn country after the Biafran War, um, my dad just really became this the symbol of really everything dangerous. And my my really beautiful childhood became kind of a warped nightmare. And he still loved me. Um, so it was with my dad more of a conflicting back and forth of this is the source of everything I love. And also this is the source of all of my pain. Mm. Yes, yes. Thank you for sharing that. Um Ladies, did you all want to sh chime in on how you feel like your mother and her father shaped the way you love, the way you receive love, the way you give love? I would say that um, for my family, like I said, they've been married for 42 years um, and they had a lot of ups and downs. Um, my mother, she suffered from epilepsy, so mm. she had seizures. Um, she also also had some um, mental health issues from abuse that she endured when she was a child. Um, pretty horrific uh, abuse um, that she endured. So she had some mm -hmm. mental health problems and things like that. Um, my father, he, uh, you know, worked at General Motors, and um, he. He grew up in a household with um, seven brothers and sisters, and um, he had to, um, I believe he he had to drop out of high school, and so he ended up working for General Motors, and um, he didn't have the best relationship with his um, mom, so um, that kind of shaped uh, how he interacted with us. He knew how to, I would say my father was very loving, but he sometimes he just didn't know uh, how to express it. Mm -hmm. um, and my mother, she, she was very loving, but she was very um, protective of us. Like we couldn't, there, we would, there would be no spending the night. We're not spending the night anywhere. Mm -hmm. You know of the things that happened to her, so she's like, no, mm -mm. she's mm -hmm. very, very protective. Um, so we're a very close knit family. I have a brother and a sister, and um, so um, I got good examples of love, and uh, um, but I had some turmoil too because um, you know, with the problems that they were having, you know, my dad he drink a little bit and and then my mother she um she had her issues with uh substance abuse too um so mm -hmm. that put a lot on me as a teenager um most were you the oldest I am the oldest okay I'm the oldest so um there were times where you know because she had the epilepsy and the mental health she would be in the hospital 
and it would just be me, dad, and my brother and sister. So a lot of that responsibility of, you know, making sure the house clean and uh, taking care of my brothers and sisters fell on me as a teenager. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, and, uh, you know, I would say up until 12 years old, I used to go with my father everywhere. Like we would just, he's like, come on, let's go. I'm, I was daddy's girl. And um, mm -hmm. then after like 12, it kind of seemed like he kind of fell back. Like, I guess he didn't think he I needed him anymore. Mm. And, um, you know, so that really shaped my um, later relationships in life. But, you know, today it's all good. <laughs> but okay. back then it was a little, yeah. A little hard. A little hard. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Monique, do you want to chime in on that at all? So my my, my mama's experience as a, a child was interesting. And her mother died when she was 16. And she was the oldest. And so she was on her own when she was 16. Wow. And she got married when she was 16 to a man who was abusive. And I think that she was a, a honest person if you asked her a question or she saw something, but there are also times where she wasn't great at expressing her emotions or pain. Um, and I, I think about just needing everything in order, that, that control that mm -hmm. we see often with with um, survivors who have experienced abuse, um, where we weren't allowed to ask why, and mm. all of those things that um, I had to learn later, um, and it, I I think it kind of inhibited me from expressing or using my voice, um, mm -hmm. and so. Um, like I said, she, if she saw something or had an opinion, she would share it and very blunt, honest person. And yet there are times where it didn't, she didn't always get that. And I, I don't know if she did that. I don't think she did that in her relationships. And when I would see her express frustration, it would be really loud because she had held it in for so long. Ooh, that's the so, whole word right there. <laughs> and so um, that was that was just that lesson for me of you don't always have to take what comes your way. Mm -hmm. it, it, it took me a minute to learn that because I wasn't allowed to ask why. Mm -hmm. That's a powerful thought. One, just how much we hold in it when it comes out is explosive. And then the other thing of you don't always have to accept what comes your way. Because how many times, how often, for how long do we just accept what comes our way? Because we don't believe there's something better. We don't, we don't know if there's going to be something better. So you better take what's here right now. You know, um, that's just such a powerful thought um, that we don't have to just accept what is. And if you're out there listening to this conversation and you're in an abusive situation, someone you love is in an abusive situation, 
You can start with calling 1-800-799-7233. It's anonymous. You can have a conversation with people who are trained to help you to know if you're in an abusive situation, what to do if you're in an abusive situation, help you to identify local resources, come up with a safety plan. And this is one thing that I tell people, young people, old people, that when you get to the place where you have the strength to reach out for help, sometimes that first place you reach out is exactly what you needed. Sometimes it isn't. But I want to encourage you to keep on reaching out till you get the help and support that you need. Don't be discouraged by what you didn't get the first time because help is out there. Support is out there. So keep on reaching. So I want to slide into talking about struggle love. And I'll, I'll read you a definition I found on um, the Internet. And for the sake of this conversation, we'll use this definition Struggle love is typically defined as a relationship where one partner experiences long-term stress as a relate as a result of the other partner's actions or inactions during their relationship. And so for my sisters who've been in an abusive relationship, that struggle love, when did you know that the relationship was abusive? Because I find it interesting that sometimes people don't even know that they're in an abusive relationship. So when, when Adanze, did you know the relationship you were in just wasn't what it was? I think it, um, it happened to me a few times because, you know, the first time you slip, you, you think you fell into a hole and then you go down that same street and you fall into the same hole. Um, I would say the first yeah. time that it happened and I was married um, it was three months into my marriage, and I don't even remember what happened, but I called my mom and I said, I want out of this. I want an annulment. I can't do this. And she said, you know, you're you're young. You're getting to know each other. You're still learning. You know that she was born in 1961, kind of the way divorce is not uh, really always a, an option. Um, it was just when I started having the feeling, I don't deserve this. Why is this happening? And then the second time around, it was a little bit more insidious. It was like me double checking myself, like, is this really happening? Or is this how I feel? Or is this just, you know, me being paranoid? Am I being overly critical? Could I be softer? And I think that the level of like illusion kind of built as I started getting deeper into those things, because the first time, you know, the first realization, it really hits you. And then I think you almost by being gaslit and all these other ways, you talk yourself out of believing what you know is true. Yes, yes, thank you. How about you, Paquita? When did you know the relationship that you were in was abusive? Um, I would say probably around maybe about six months into it. Um, it was just, it, it was just like drama after drama. There was no like rest period at all. Um, and I was like, okay, but you know, <laughs> at the time I felt that that's what I deserve. That's who mm. that, that was hard to say. Yeah. <laughs> oh, My self-worth at that time was so low that I was like, okay, well, you're not going to get anything better than this, so you might as well stick with it. And mm -hmm. I did off and on for eight years. 
<laughs> off mm-hmm. and out of years. You know, and I just, it just, you know, it never, it never got better. Mm-hmm. It, it mm-hmm. never got better. There were times where it was, you know, okay, but it never got better. Wow. Monique, why why is it hard for women sometimes to be able to put their finger on this is abuse, this is this is not the way it should go? You know, as they were talking, I I, I really appreciate you two sharing it. I think you really appreciate yes. it. I thank you. I I think about two things. I. So sometimes people think abuse is just hitting, right? Mm-hmm. There are so many other kinds of abuse. Um, right. And it's not just from the partner, but it's also from the system as well, from society. And mm-hmm. so coming at us from a lot of different angles, we're trying to juggle it. And sometimes you have to pick which one is better than the other, right? And so I hear lots of lots of women talk about it, it was us against the world, mm-hmm. and so that 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 is one piece, right? Where mm-hmm. uh, us against the world, and then there's that other piece of as girls, we were taught to carry so much water, um, more water than we should have ever carried, um, more that was placed upon our our shoulders. Um, you know, learn how to cook at early ages. Um, a boy hits you at school, he likes you. And, mm-hmm. and I heard someone say, someone said that to me once as a, as a child. Um, mm-hmm. Me too. And just, um, we were, without, uh, without our parents saying, you're a girl and you are less than, they did other things and said other things that sent that message. And mm-hmm. I, I can't believe in my heart of hearts that my mama was like, I want to send this message to my child so that, but those are the messages she learned and her mother, mm-hmm. her mother learned and, and it goes way back, right? We're talking about historical trauma, generational trauma. Mm-hmm. That it takes some effort to really look at and say, I, I need to look at this so that I can move differently and, and make some different decisions. And so, um, I, I think that, that we carry our, our, who we are is who we bring into those relationships, into our friendships. And so yes. I think that um, it's our childhood trauma, it's our childhood experiences, those messages that we receive. Mm-hmm. So something says to you, this, this hurts too bad, you know, or this isn't right, or, you know, whatever it is. And, and it all depends on who the person is. You know, people people leave when they when they know it's right, when they're ready to leave, and when they can leave. So. Mm-hmm. Thank you, thank you. Um, so I think so much of what you said, Monique, is at the foundation of there's something that we're believing. And Takita, you kind of hit on this a little bit too. There's something that we're believing that keeps us anchored in unhealthy relationships. So I'm going to ask you two ladies, like what did you believe to be true 
that kept you in that abusive relationship? I believed what I did when I was seven years old. Uh, I believed I was bad. I believed it was my fault. I believe that other people determined my sense of self-worth and that what someone else said about me must be true because I care about them so much. And if they love me, why would they lie? Um, I believe other people did not mean to do this. It was not on purpose. I believe if something happened to me, I provoked that behavior and I was somehow responsible for the independent actions of another person. Um, I believe that I could somehow change the way someone thought I was worth being loved if I could just do better in every way, just learn better, do better, act better. Um, if I could just fix the issue, I believed I had control over the situation. And I also believed that the other person could see my pain and feel my pain. I believe that person really listened to me because they love me. Um, and that had so much to do with my childhood because I really believed all those things about my father. So I went into relationships thinking, you know, I'm a grown woman and I'm just a seven-year-old girl inside, really. Oh, girl. Yes. I would yes, feel that yes. way. I would feel seven, walking around, looking in the mirror. Like, I, I really didn't know who I was without the reference point of another person. Mm-hmm. Wow. You know, and, and that is really just the honest truth. A lot of times where we have been traumatized, the age in which we were traumatized, we are emotionally stuck there. We continue to grow up and we look like a grown woman, but we are that little broken girl inside. And she's kind of controlling things and, and, and letting us know what we should or shouldn't do. Um, so, you know, that is really, really on point. Um, what would you say to someone who's listening right now, who's still believing some of those things that you believe the other day? I would say the most important thing is to understand where that comes from so that you can work with that and talk to that and deal with that. Because giving yourself the validation that that is a real, that's a very real truth to you, even though you're not living that life anymore, it still is a part. It's living inside your body and that's calling out to be heard and nurtured. Um, making space for that person and setting deciding that the two need to be separate, that yes, I have this yearning in me for unconditional love, for care, for support, for nurturing and for acceptance, but I can give those things to myself. And knowing that that comes from a small part of me that is not the woman that I'm growing into today, that those are almost two separate identities that live inside of me that build the woman I am. And in completion, that the whole person, but not to cast away those things and not think those are bad, those are wrong, those need to be fixed. That's always going to be a part of you. And that core wound might always hurt when it gets touched, but just allow it to be there really and, and give it space where it needs so it doesn't consume you and override what the adult woman and what the grown person, the strong, resilient person wants and needs to. You can have both those needs without being sucked into that. I love it, sister. I love it. Um, there was something that you said that I wanted to come back to. Oh, I want to underscore that the love we desire, we can give to ourselves. You know, we, we're taught to believe that the love that we desire, we need from someone else. And we do need relationships. We do. But in the meantime, in between times, the love that we seek, particularly to our little girls inside of us, we can love her. We can, we can give her the love and security, you know, as we continue to grow and heal. And 
we don't have to be without love because someone isn't right there right now giving us the love that we desire. Thank you so much for that. Paquita, how about you? What were you believing at the time that kept you in that abusive relationship? Um, I was believing um, what I had always heard um, growing up, being um, a darker black woman. They would say, oh, you're ugly, or you have big lips, you have this, you're, you know, and as a child, that becomes your inner voice. Mm -hmm. So the first, you know, person that show you any attention otherwise, you're like, oh, okay, well, then that's what it, that's, this is what it is. But, you know, still in the back of your head, you're still thinking, well, um, yeah, I'm dark and I'm, I'm ugly and I have the big lips and nobody really likes me and, you know, things like that. Um, and then here comes somebody that, you know, is telling you the exact opposite, mm -hmm. but still treating you like you are at the same time. Mm -hmm. so, yeah, that was. That was pretty much what I was thinking. Mm -hmm. um, just my own insecurities about being um, darker African American, um, and you know, having you know, <laughs> when you're in like school, you know, all the light skinned girls with pretty hair, or the you know, the other girls um, that weren't as dark as you, and you know, I'm you know, I'm pretty chocolatey, <laughs> you know, so. Um, the only positive, uh, place I was getting it from was my parents. You know, my father used to call me his, uh, Nubian queen. He would say, my little Nubian princess, don't worry about what the other kids are saying. And my mother was like, you know why they pick on you? Because you're so beautiful and, you know, things like that. You know, I'm getting the self-esteem at home, but once I get out that door, I'm getting hit with all the negativity. Right. So it would kind of reminds me of a line from one of my favorite movies, Pretty Woman, mm -hmm. where she says, why is it so easy to believe the bad thing? Yeah. You know, it's real easy to believe the bad thing. Really. Mm -hmm. Yes. And, and you touch on the whole idea of colorism mm -hmm. and, and we, we are in this conversation, the spectrum of beautiful blackness. So like I asked Adonze, like, what would you say to a young lady who's struggling like you did about her own identity? That's, I think that's almost still a struggle for me sometimes. <laughs> um, I think just letting someone know you don't have to belong anywhere. Like going to school in Milwaukee, I was too dark for the white girls and too light for the black girls. And the way we talked at home with me having an African dad, I was just like either called whitewash or Oreo or whatever. And, you know, that came with a certain set of privileges, knowing that certain people thought I was pretty and then certain people thought I was so ugly and being just rejected by the black women that I wanted to be friends with because I felt like I, I wanted to sit with them. I was like, why... Mm -hmm. different about us because I didn't relate to white girls at all um, I think telling mm -hmm. girls that you don't have to 
fit into a mold. You don't have to be what other people tell you they see you as. You're how you define yourself. Um, and whoever wants mm -hmm. to be close to you, who wants to love you, those relationships will come in your life and you won't have to fight for that acceptance, that belonging. It'll be given to you. Yes, yes. Thank you. How about you, Paquita? Um, for me, it always, I always go back to um, what my grandmother taught me. My grandmother, she uh, was an evangelist um, for the, uh, what is it? Pentecostal Assembly of the World. Um, she would always tell me that God does not make mistakes. Mm -hmm. And she would always tell me that I was fearfully and wonderfully made. Yes. And yeah, that's what I would tell them. God does not make mistakes. He does not make mistakes. You are fearfully and wonderfully made. He made you the exact way he wanted you to be yeah. and you, you hold on to that regardless of what anybody else tells you thank you i love it so you know it's hard to know even once you come to the 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 knowledge that you know something's wrong with this relationship you know you might still be struggling with what's wrong with you but then you said beyond my own problems Something about this relationship is fucked up and I need to get up out of here, you know. Um, so when did you, <laughs> I'm sorry, Bikita, you probably never heard me cuss before. Bikita, um, <laughs> when did you know it was time to leave and then how did you ready yourself for that? Um, ooh. To be honest, it came down to one fateful night. Mm. <laughs> it was his birthday. Um, we had went out and, you know, we got all dressed up and we went out and we had fun. And then he started drinking. Once the drinking starts, his behavior just goes crazy. Okay. And that night... Um, he had got into it with a with an another woman, a white woman, and um somebody told him like, Oh, she's like a um she's a snitch to police, so you you can't trust her and da 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 da. And I was like, Okay. And so um we were all me, him and her go back to my house and you know, he was talking crazy and I'm like, Okay, look, you ain't about to do nothing, you gonna Go sleep it off, and that's all there is to it. But it, it didn't turn out like that. He ended up beating this girl up in front of me Ooh. with like a, the end of a gun, and I was like, "Oh my god!" <laughs> that was just that was it. Mm -hmm. I said, oh, "Okay, if you can do that in front of me mm -hmm. and act like it's, you know, he, oh, I would never do that." No. Yes, she would. Mm -hmm. <laughs> that that was the light for me. I was like, okay, yeah, you got to get out of this. And at the time, my daughter was um, three years old. He's not her, her biological father or anything like that. But I was like, okay, now what happened? What, what would have happened if my daughter was here? My God. And, you know, he, he really went off. You know, I, I was able to calm him down enough to get that away, get the gun away from the people downstairs 
called the police because they heard all the commotion, you know. And the police come up and they are talking to me and he takes me into another room so that I'm not in the same eyesight as him. And I'm looking at the police officer and the police officer and like, do you need help? And I'm like, yes, I need help. And um, so they pretty much, um, he kind of talked, He, I don't know how he talked his way out of it, but he talked his way out of it. And it was enough for the police to leave. And I was able to calm him down enough for so he can go somewhere else. And I took that girl home um, after, you know, the incident. Mm-hmm. From there, I was like, okay, you you got to do something because this is too dangerous. Mm-hmm. My God. And from there, I, I just started working um, on getting him out of my getting him out of my house um, to the point that I gave up my section eight and I moved me and my daughter back in with my parents. Wow. Wow. Okay. So I got two big questions. (laughs) One is how did he talk himself out of beating this woman with a gun and police were there and saw this woman? How did, when the police saw her, she claimed that um, she had she was coming over to celebrate with us for his birthday. She saw some guys ran up on her and they jumped her and she came running up to the house. Okay, so she and that's how she got in the house. So she lied, and I'm sitting here like, why are you lying? I'm thinking in my head, why are you lying? Tell them the truth so we can get the heck out of this house. If you right. tell them the truth, we can get out of here. But um, she lied, and the police—the police really didn't believe her story. Mm-hmm. Um, but they, you know, what I'm saying they couldn't do anything really about it either, because you know they didn't—they never found the gun, even though it was in the house. <laughs> um, and, you know, and you know he's sitting right next to her, like comforting her like oh it's gonna be okay it's gonna be okay and i'm sitting there like oh my god this dude is really crazy you must have felt like you in the twilight zone i did i was like did i just see what i thought i saw okay so here's the second question i have for you Mm -hmm. you told the police that you Mm -hmm. needed help Uh uh-huh that you were afraid that you needed help why did they leave you there with him um because when it was time, when it, when we went back into the other room, the police officer was like, something's not adding up. It doesn't sound right. Um, and, you know, we need to, we need to figure out what's going on. <laughs> Them two kept up with the, you know, kept up with the lie. And I was just sitting there like, okay, I... I didn't know what to say. I just kind of was sitting there silent, like, okay, I'm telling you we need help. (laughs) You know. Wow. That's crazy. It is is interesting. You know, race always has something to do with something. Uh, I was in Janesville, Wisconsin. So that should tell you something right there. That tells me a whole lot because I'm thinking a white woman is saying, she beat, obviously, but a white woman is saying, I don't need help. A black woman is saying, I need help, and the police leave. Leave. Yikes. Mm-hmm. 
Yikes. <laughs> Ooh. Yeah. Um, yeah. Adante, how about you? When did you know it was time to leave and how did you ready yourself to make that big step? I think I had been planning subconsciously to leave for a long time before it started happening. Um, by that time, I was so isolated from all my friends and my coworkers, and all I really did was go to work and come home. So I had only really told a few of my friends, the ones that were still around who would like tolerate to hear about it anymore because everyone else just got so sick of hearing how bad he was to me and how I kept going back with him. And um, he had already had two prior offenses with me, um, one involving my younger sister who was four, five years younger than me at the time. He put his hands on her. She would have been 22 at the time. And um, it took me, honestly, knowing that there's that moment that you look at someone while they're doing something to you. And I'm a spiritual person. I don't go to church necessarily, but it was what I would call a God moment. And I looked at him and I just thought, this person's going to kill me. And this is bigger than me at this point. I have to get out because he had um, dragged me under a bed by my hair and across my living room. And um, just the thing that came out of him, like the words and how big he was and how afraid I felt. I never felt that terror in my life. And I had had two incidents in a three-day period and I had just accepted a brand new job and I was working as a therapist. So I had all this shame compounded onto me, like how could I be in situation? It's when I looked around and I said, how did I get here? And when I left, it was so... It was so abrupt. I just waited until he left the house because he got so angry. He stormed off and I got in my car and I texted the one girlfriend I knew and she was going through a similar situation where she was trying to get out of her apartment. And I just said, I'm leaving. Um, And I parked downtown and I walked on foot and I called an officer to meet me on foot because I wouldn't have them come to the house because I was so afraid what would happen if he got there because while this whole thing was going down i was video recording i was audio recording um i took pictures of things that happened because i was ready i just said there was a point where and i had called the officers actually the first day after the first incident happened and i was trying to weigh the pros and cons of reporting and it just came a point where in my mind there was no question that i had to report or i was not going to get out of the situation and i knew it was going to continue to escalate to a point where i could be seriously injured and i almost was and i went and i moved in with my mom and i took all my clothes in trash bags and at the age of 28 years old i moved in with my mom and i stayed with her and i found an apartment in one month and i moved myself in i advocated for myself through the court systems i wrote my impact statement I submitted every ounce of evidence to the officers. They still dropped wow. two of the five, three of the five charges. Um, but I'm not surprised. Judge Bears knows him already. And he's a white man. And the first time they had arrested him, they handcuffed him behind the SUV and called me the crazy girlfriend and said they didn't want to embarrass him the first time he was arrested in Middleton. So the system has protected him for a long time. And he continues to get away with what he did. And actually, a month after, a month before the last incident had happened, the final incident, he had graduated the FOP program, first offender program for the domestic violence. So clearly, their programs are not as effective as we'd like to think. But um, I knew at that point I was the only one that was going to fight for my life. Wow. Wow. And how do you feel race played a place in that and how he was treated and how you were treated? <laughs> Oh my God, he got off so easy. He bailed, he posted bond in a matter of two hours. 
Um, his parents were rich in Texas. They retained a lawyer that specialized in defending people who were accused of domestic violence charges, um, Morali and Josti. On their website, it actually says that um, oftentimes the other person is responsible for what you've done and like we can defend your actions. And it's it's disgusting. Oh, my God. It is horrific. Um and I, I was watching the live stream because I wouldn't actually give him the satisfaction of sitting in court and having him see my face. So I just watched it on YouTube and I watched them disparage me. I watched them pick my story apart. I watched them say that he could not be entirely held responsible for his actions that day and that it had been a volatile relationship wow. for years. I watched them bring up his two prior charges and try to still say that he should not have gotten, they dropped the batteries and all he was given were two disorderlies with domestic modifiers. They even dropped the intimidation of a victim and dissuading reporting when he had threatened to call my job and say that I was abusing him. And I watched them totally invalidate my whole experience. And I knew this would have never happened if I was a white girl with blonde hair with a dad that worked for the cops. And I just thought, you know what, I can't win. And I told the victim impact panel, um, the case manager there, I said, it's not my job to make sure you rightfully convict him. It's my job to get justice for me, because this is actually how women die, is that you repeatedly invalidate other victims. And he has three priors. So when another woman falls prey to him again, that blood will be on your hands, not mine, because my conscience is clean. Wow. All he, did so... was 11 days oh my God. All he did was 11 days in jail with Huber work release privileges. <laughs> a black man would have been in there since oh. January of last year, and he just got sentenced a couple months ago. Uh, wow. They well, would have lifted up the jail and put the black man underneath. Oh, yeah. I know race had a huge treated. You know, and it, it, it goes back to, I think, the historic the historic reality that black women can't be raped, black women can't be abused, you know, that we are able to be mistreated and have no justice behind that. Monique Adante just talked about, you know, in her situation, being a professional woman, being a therapist, you know, that that played a a bit of a role of her staying or staying silent. How much does shame sometimes keep us in abusive relationships? I don't have statistics and I know that it plays a large part. Um, You either have people that call their parents um, and say, this is what's happening and they're encouraged to stay. Um, And just that encouragement is shameful, right? Because you're calling someone you love and asking for help and they're telling you what you're feeling isn't isn't right and this is the way you should feel and this is what you need to do mm-hmm. and it, it, it's not to do it to to do harm and yet i i just think about families are probably the hardest people to go to um and that's usually the first place you go but because mm-hmm. they make all the mistakes in the world um and can give you the worst advice ever. Yeah. <laughs> and I, I'm laughing at that, not haha, but you know, my one of my siblings mm-hmm. is a survivor. And I can think about all the mistakes we made as a family. Um, and it was full of advice and not listening and not understanding when, you know, now that I know 
if a woman will go back seven times, at least seven times, before she decides to leave. Um, doesn't matter who you are. You can mm-hmm. you can be poor, and mm-hmm. it, it will it will influence your life. You can be educated. You can be not so educated, and shame does come with it. Imagine, you know, as Adanze said, um, working hard and and. We get the, that respectability politics, right? It tells you, mm-hmm. no degree, you done made it, and you're above everybody else. And so why would you put yourself in that situation? But it's mm-hmm. everyone, right? And it, it's just right. paper. Or you have the rich woman in, in an affluent neighborhood who doesn't want the neighbors to see the police in front of her house. And so mm-hmm. the cops either. And so doesn't matter who you are shame definitely comes with it and it, it looks so different um, mm-hmm. and it's delivered in such different ways that we don't realize it but it, it's just something that's telling us what we what we're doing to decide to leave isn't right or mm-hmm. that we're not extending this person that's doing us harm and making us feel unsafe some kind of grace and you know once again, going back to what we learned as young girls, mm-hmm. yes. and it, it, it yes. would carry it with us. I, I was thinking about um, that uh, Aganze and Paquita talking about what do they say to themselves for um, to remind themselves that they were loved and and that they were worthwhile. And I I appreciated all of those, and they 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 make sense to me. You know, I. I got pep talks like that from my sisters as well. And there are words and then there are actions, right? And there are mm-hmm. things that we we have to do some digging in. No one ever, ever deserves to hit someone or put their hands on someone. Mm-hmm. Or even touch you on the shoulder without your permission. And and there are things that we have to dig in and, and ask ourselves. Why am I? Why is this okay for me to participate in this? And it's not a shame thing. And yet, we always have to. We're responsible for ourselves. And how do we dig in and and figure out how we can reorder our steps so that we are safe and that we feel some agency over ourselves and and we feel empowered. Yeah. Yes, thank you for that. And, you know, I, I was thinking as you were sharing about a whole nother level of shame, you know, if you are in the church. Mm-hmm. You know, when I was going through my situation, I'm in the church, I'm a minister, you know, and, and the shame of of that. But also the flip side of that shame was wanting to protect his image mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and not wanting anyone to think ill of him. You know, so it's kind of a two-sided thing. I don't want you to think bad of me that I could possibly have gotten myself in this situation and can't get out. And then the other flip side was, oh, I don't want you to think bad of him because that struggle love was real at the time, you know. And the the messages you're talking about, Monique, really become underscored when we are in the church because the first thing, particularly as Black people, we learn is forgive. That's a whole nother conversation about how sick I am of people telling black people to forgive somebody and 
um, us expecting it of ourselves before we hurt. You can't heal what ain't hurt. Right. You know, um, and so that's that other level of, of that that guilt then that comes in that so I should be able to forgive this person. And and then we say because of those reasons or having a false sense of faith and hope in a person that ain't worth it. Right. You know, that they can be better, they can change, they can't and they can. It is a possibility, but it's it a probability. Like are they going to and how long do I want to wait around? And like Adanze said, you get to a point where if you are in a, a relationship that's extremely volatile, where you feel like your life is threatened, and there's two there's two steps to that. One, you can feel that your life is really threatened, like in Paquita's case, a gun could be introduced, a weapon could be introduced, where you just feel this direct threat about your life. But also, just even if you don't feel that somebody could hit you and you fall and hit your head. You're just as dead. If they intended to kill you, I didn't intend to kill you. Whenever that violence and that movement of your body in unwanted ways enters into the equation, you can die accidentally or on purpose. And you're still dead either way. You know, and so if you're in a situation and you're feeling unsafe and you're ready to go, you come to that point, you're ready to go and you don't know what to do next, reach out for help. You can start with the 800 number for domestic violence, 800-799-7233. And again, there is no one size fits all for everyone. So if that's not the thing that's going to float your boat, reach out to somebody at church, reach out to somebody in your family, reach out to somebody in your community, tell somebody, because I think the thing that gets us the most is the secrecy that when you don't tell anyone you are stuck in darkness with that person. Let some light in by telling someone that you feel you can trust. Tune in next Sunday for part two of this powerful conversation. But in the meantime, head on over to thelater.org and click that subscribe button to stay up to date on the work that we're doing. Last, be sure to subscribe to our podcast so you won't miss one single fearless conversation. Thank you for listening.